No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, longtime sports columnist Jerry Eisenberg explains how he correctly predicted the exact score of the Super Bowl. How did I get it right? Well, I'll tell you, there's a monkey in the Las Vegas Zoo. I went down there and it, how did I get it right? A master stroke of luck. I found out later if I, if I had made a bet, I would have won $2,600. Plus, a baseball portrait artist describes how he gained his passion. You know what? It kind of started with my dad's baseball card collection. You know, when I was very little, he grew up, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s and collected baseball cards as, you know, most kids his age did. And uh, his mother summarily threw most of them out like most mothers did. Also, Norman Chad says the Astros sign-stealing scandal doesn't change the view of Pete Rose. People now are telling me that his penalty has been disproportionate when you take a look at the Astros. Well, what they're doing with the Astro players right now, that may be incorrect, but that doesn't change the fact that what they did to Pete Rose was correct at the time. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the legendary sports columnist Jerry Eisenberg, who for the first time this year did not attend the Super Bowl, breaking a 53-year streak. However, he did predict the outcome and the exact score, 31-20 Kansas City. But first, we're joined by one of our favorite and most frequent guests, ESPN senior writer, Howard Bryant. Howard, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jeremy. This is the first one of 2020 for us, isn't it? I think it is. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. <laughs> um, we've got a lot to get to, Howard. So, so let me start with the news this week, the Astros and their apology tour uh, obviously the first go around was inadequate many people felt now it seems they're giving it another shot and they're trying to uh i don't want to um be disparaging but they're they're trying to convey true contrition how does it all strike you i don't see that at all jeremy really if we're being honest i feel like I feel like we're getting all kinds of messages and I think it's going to take a little bit of time to figure out what's what let's start from the beginning. Number one, the commissioner, Rob Manfred's report at the beginning of this, his investigation said this was a player driven scheme and yet the players weren't punished. Okay. Which I understood in a couple of ways. I interpreted that as, uh, this is a CBA year. Maybe this was something that Manfred didn't want to really affect negotiations as MLB is going into a contract year. I also thought it was a softball to the owner, Jim Crane, to make sure that he still had a good team. I mean, okay, you can get rid of Jeff Luno. You can actually, you know, you can, you can suspend AJ Hinch for a year, but that's still a hundred win team they've got. That's still a contending world series level team. And so so the one thing that Jim Crane walked out of, despite the scandal, is they still can win the World Series this year with Dusty Baker as their manager. So then we move on to something else, which was now we start to hear from the players. Jose Altuve has been completely um, unconvincing. 
Alex Bregman slightly more convincing. Marwin Gonzalez, who was on that 2017 team, and 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 Carlos Correa, much more convincing. I think that they recognize that that they did something wrong. I, I saw, you know, I've heard contrition out of them. Then you listen to A.J. Hinch and the, the interview he did with Tom Verducci on MLB Network, and A.J. Hinch, I covered A.J. Hinch as a rookie in 1998 with the Oakland A's. I've known A.J. for 20 years. Um, completely unconvincing on one, on one specific point, which was, did you, you know, can you assure us that the players didn't, you know, weren't wearing buzzers? And he said, oh, well, the, the commissioner's report covered this. Why not just say no? Um, so that struck me as, as strange. And now we see the Jim Crane uh, press conference this morning down in West Palm. And again, it didn't affect the outcome. Of course it affected the outcome. That's why you did it. Of course. Well, it's ridiculous. It's like saying, well, we did steroids, but they didn't help me. It said, well, why would you, <laughs> why would you do it? And so, so to me, I don't, I don't feel. I, I feel like there are many more questions and answers. I feel like Rob Manfred has a lot to answer for. And once again, I, I think that Manfred has to answer for a couple of other things, which is why are teams requesting moving their replay rooms closer to the dugout? And why did you, why did major league baseball grant these requests, which is in the report and also the Wall Street Journal, both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post pieces really undermine and destroy the credibility of that report. It's obvious that these were not that this, you know, that this scandal goes far beyond the players. And on the one hand, it's like, OK, it's OK to blame the players because that's what management always does. And you get to keep the Astros intact as a good team. But on the other hand, <laughs> This is something that goes upstairs into management, and you only gave Jim Crane a $5 million fine. So it's going to be really interesting to me, Jeremy, to see two things. One, how Manfred deals with this. Obviously, I think he'll shield himself and with the expectation that this will all go away. But the other thing to watch out for, as you well know from everything that we've covered over the years, Something else is coming with some other teams. I mean, the fact that the that the Oakland A's and these other teams and the Nationals have all said that they went out and they formally complained to Major League Baseball, that doesn't strike me as some renegade player-driven thing. We're speaking with Howard Bryant, the ESPN senior writer. And we had the announcement this week as well from Colin Kaepernick. You've been covering his story since the fall of 2016 um, when he made um, – his decision uh, not to uh, stand at attention during the national anthem, playing the national anthem, became a matter of national debate. And now he's announced that he's forming a publishing company and it's going to publish his memoir. And we, you know, one thing we've talked a lot about Colin Kaepernick the last few years, but we haven't heard, of course, much from him. Um, what did you make of this announcement? Well, I think it's I, I think it's important, I, I, and I applaud it and appreciate the fact that Colin Kaepernick is still moving forward with this. You know, because think about the the types of criticism that he received. Oh, he's not really an activist. Oh, he's an opportunist. Oh, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to play. He doesn't. So it, he is. He undergoes a constant bombardment about the sincerity of his actions. 
And when you read the release about the relationship with Audible, about the publishing company, in addition to the memoir, I think the real news is the publishing company that he is committing, he's committing his resources and he's committing his time to essentially tell stories. Uh, And in that release, the, the part that jumped out at me was the black and brown story and talking about telling those stories. And what that said to me was that was an immediate shot across the bow that he does not feel that the mainstream white media of which we are both a part of can be trusted. And it explains the fact that he hasn't given an interview since January, 2017. And the fact that, Hey, the only way, what do we say? If you need something done, you got to do it yourself. It's obvious that what he's doing is he is parlaying his name as an activist, as a black man, as an anti-establishment person, as somebody to those dissidents out there, to the Mahmoud Raoufs and the John Carlos's and the Tommy Smiths and the rest of the world out there, that here's a place you can go to be trusted. And also to people who want to tell black stories that they feel or minority stories that they feel are being ignored by the mainstream or that the mainstream never touches. Essentially, what I what I read from that release was here's a place you can go that can be prominent, where you can be protected and you can tell the story in a way that's not going to get manipulated. So in some ways, it all sort of makes sense that he wasn't going to speak to the media. He wasn't going to give interviews. He doesn't trust us. And so what do you do when you don't trust? You try to create an entity yourself that you think is going to represent you fairly. So I I, I think it's a fascinating next step for him. Obviously, you and I know the publishing world in 2020 is is not the most stable of businesses. But but as as an idea, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he produces. Howard, it is always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for the first time, but not the last time in 2020 no it's my pleasure this is the sporting life on espn radio and the espn app for the first 53 super bowls there was one constant at the game the presence of jerry eisenberg and jerry green two legendary sports writers they covered the first 53 super bowls Jerry Green from Detroit was there this year for Super Bowl 54, but our friend Jerry Eisenberg, the longtime star columnist from the Newark Star-Ledger, declined to attend this year, breaking his streak. However, Jerry did predict accurately the final score and outcome of the game, 31-20. Chiefs, it is a pleasure, as always, to welcome to the sporting life the legendary Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry, it's always good to be here, Jeremy. Thank you, Jerry. How did you get it right? How did I get it right? Well, I'll tell you, there's a monkey in the uh, Las Vegas Zoo. I went down there and how did I get it right? A a massive (laughs) stroke of luck. No, no, no. Luck is the residue of design. If I I had made a bet on it, it's a double bet. You bet one team and then the scores. If I'd made that bet, I would have won $2,600. Well, it's a good thing you live in Las Vegas because you have, uh, you know, ample opportunity to wager legally on these things. Did you, did you go to a, a, a book and, and put money down? On this game, no. But no. I did pick, I told them, I told them the under and that was the under. I picked the score and that was luck. And I was, but I did, I was very convinced that Mahomes was not going to throw for 300 yards against his team and he didn't. So there were there were three prop bets. I didn't make them, but I, I was interested. I've never seen the Super Bowl on television. 
This is the all first time. Experience. All these years. You know, the first one was played in 1967. You were at, yeah. as we said, all of them were speaking with the great Jerry Eisenberg. Why didn't you go this year, Jerry? Well, you know, uh, I always thought, when you, in terms of anatomy, I'll put it politely, something else went first. So I got good news and bad news. The good news was that was all right, but the bad news is my legs are not all right. And I'm, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, Jerry? I didn't. I, that that kind of flew over my head. What oh, did I'm you sorry. Say? Well, well, I got good news and bad news. Uh, most of my body, the, the part that I was interested in, is in good shape, but okay. the legs went. Uh, my dad was a was a professional baseball player. When Mel Ott retired, I was inconsolable, and he said to me, "Listen, kid, I know the legs go first. Mm. And that's what happened with me. And I was thinking ahead, not only to this the Super Bowl, such a hassle to get in and get out of, and you know, they um, uh, there's a, a lovely woman in there who really helps me with the wheelchair. I can walk, but I can't walk those distances. But then I thought going around in the dark, looking for where the bus is parked and everything, that wasn't for me. And I was thinking ahead to the derby where I've done 55. Every derby, there's that yelling on the over the loudspeaker, horse loose, horse loose, and I can't run away from horses anymore. So it's inevitable. I'll go back. Uh, I'm writing for the paper. I wrote all week, by the way. And um, we got. A, I have a nice deal with them. And uh, they said, you, if you don't want to travel anymore, it's okay with us. We think you're important to us, so we'll leave you a picture in the paper. We're speaking with Jerry Eisenberg of the Newark Star-Ledger, the legendary columnist who's been doing it, oh, since the Eisenhower administration as a columnist. You know, Jerry, sometimes uh, young writers, I mean, this was uh, sometimes the story, would get columns when they were too young and maybe they hadn't formed um, enough relationships, they hadn't had enough experiences to, to be great columnists. You were born to be a columnist. You've been doing it for decades and decades and decades. 69 years. But you haven't, you haven't run out of things to say. Why haven't you run out of things to say, as so many because do? Because I got a loud mouth, and I was just naughty kid, and it carried over into my adulthood. No, I, I'll never run out of things to say. I, 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 as a matter of fact, I know, Jeremy, you saw this in the AP wire, that baseball is going to cut out 40 minor league teams. Right. And I'm going to start a three-part series on that, explaining what those teams mean to those people. Um, some, a number of years ago, I was in Kinston, North Carolina, um, and most of the stores on the Main Street were boarded up. It was, it was, they were really having a tough time. And when I drove on Main Street, there was a big oil cloth sign over the street, and it said, God bless our tobacco farmers and our Kinston Indians. And that means something to those people. Yeah. We're speaking with Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong, you're 89? Yes, sir. I'll be 90 in September if I get if the odds are with me. It's it's just great that you're still writing, you're still doing um you're still doing what you do so well and and what drives you to keep doing it? Because it's all I know to do. I don't play golf. Let me tell you something about golf. All these retired guys out here play golf. Right. When I was a young and writer, I went, yeah. I, went to, um, I went to the Roosevelt Hotel because the Cardinals were in town. They had an off day, and I didn't want to go to the ballpark the next night. So I said, I'll go in there. I'll find them sitting in the lobby. Nobody was in the lobby except Rogers Hornsby. The last man to hit 400 before Williams, and he was the batting coach. And I was so young, I said, Mr. Horn. That's, I, I'm afraid I have to correct you, Jerry. It was actually Bill Terry who was last man before Williams. Oh, 
better. Yeah, I'm sorry. But he was right before Bill Terry. But he did hit 400, right? He hit, four, he hit over 400 for a five-season period, I believe, from 21 through 25. Remarkable. Yeah, another flash in the pan. Yes. And anyway, the thing I wanted to say was, I, I was a young guy, and I called him Mr. Hornsby. I said, where is everybody? And he said, I the kids are playing golf. And I said, well, how come you're not out there playing with him? He looked at me and said, listen, sonny boy, if Rogers Hornsby's going to hit a ball, someone else is going to damn well chase it. And that's how I feel about golf. <laughs> that's great. We're speaking with Jerry Eisenberg, the legendary columnist, wrote so uh, well and so lovingly about the sport of baseball for so many years, boxing as well. And you've got a big fight coming up in your adopted hometown I like of Las it. Vegas. I, I, I like the fight. I'll tell you what, I don't particularly think these guys would be very much. Can I tell our it, audience who's fighting, Jerry? Would that be okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah that'll help. You go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's a rematch. It'll be you and me in a minute. <laughs> Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury. Uh, they had that remarkable fight 15 months ago uh, where Fury came up off the deck, seeming yeah, to yeah. rise Lazarus-like. Uh, you could argue that he really should have been given the fight since he won see, most of those rounds. That. I can't. Oh, that he should have been given. Yeah, 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 I thought he was pretty good. Uh, I'll tell you what the deal is here. I, you know, as I wrote a, book, a boxing book called uh, uh, The Golden Age of Heavyweight Boxing, uh, once you were giants. And, and we don't have any giants out there. But at least these guys aren't pygmies. And... The interesting thing about it is this: there's a guy six foot six, six foot seven. He knows how to box. I can't believe it. Yeah, his sure he movement is great. He's got a good jab. He knows when to get in, when to get out. He is a boxer, a boxer. Period. The other guy has one arm, yep. and it's like uh, uh, it's like Thor's thunderbolt, slingshot, or Thor. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's it's thunder and lightning, and the thing of it is. He Wait, that was Johansson, I thought. You know, I mean, Johansson that's called right. show. He said he had thunder, <laughs> thunder in his right hand, he right. told me. After he sparred, he said, I'm not going to spar today. And I said, well, I haven't seen his results. All right, I'll go spar. Gets his brother, brings him in the ring, hits him. His brother's girlfriend jumps on his back. They're rolling on the canvas. He says, we don't box no more. <laughs> Jerry, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks. It's always a pleasure, Jeremy, anytime. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. As we speak, this week, the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Negro National League is being celebrated, particularly at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. There's been an exhibit there for the last year celebrating the history and the rich traditions, the legacy of the Negro Baseball Leagues. Of course, where so many Brilliant African-American players plied their talents before the integration of Major League Baseball in the 20th century by Jackie Robinson in 1947 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. One of the remarkable aspects of the exhibit taking place are a series of oil portraits of prominent players from the Negro Baseball Leagues by the artist who joins us now, Greg Kreinler. Greg, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Greg, you you paint uh, these remarkable uh, these remarkable oil portraits and scenes from baseball's history. How did uh, how did a fine artist such as yourself choose baseball as his primary topic? Well, uh, you know what? It kind of started with my dad's baseball card collection. Um, you know, when I was very little, uh, he. Uh, 
he grew up, uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s and collected baseball cards, as, you know, most kids his age did. And uh, his mother uh, summarily threw most of them out, like most mothers did. I, I had that experience. Well, mine's a little more complicated, but it's, it's the same general story, yeah. Yeah, same same kind of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was able to hold on to a few of them. And I guess when I was younger, I kind of discovered them. And, and you know, he used to tell me about the players that he watched and – and loved, you know, Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra. He was a Yankees fan. Still is a Yankees fan. And uh, that's why you're Greg, but G R A I G, as in the third baseman. Greg. Now you're the only two G R A I Gs I think I've ever heard of. Gregs. It's oh wow. <laughs> there are not many of us. <laughs> not many. We're speaking with Greg Kreinler, the artist, uh, the baseball artist, uh, remarkably gifted painter. At this point in time, 230 portraits of his are being exhibited at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, it's a spectacular museum, and it's celebrating right now the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Negro National League, which was organized by Rube Foster in 1920, in February 1920. Of course, Negro Leagues existed before 1920, but that was the formation of the preeminent uh uh, Black Baseball League, the Negro National League in 1920. And there are 230, it's 230 portraits you've done, right? They're five by seven. They're amazing. How long does it take to paint 230 portraits? Oh, man. Uh, well, the project was about uh, two and a half to three years long. So, yeah, it, it, it took a while. Uh, each painting took, you know, probably at least five to six hours. But, you know, some were 10 hours, 12 hours. But then the research that goes into each painting, that can usually <laughs> that can usually go past, uh, you know, any painting time that uh, I put at the easel. And some of these players, of course, are, are very prominent figures known by all true fans of the games, whether it's a Josh Gibson or a Buck Leonard or a James Cool Papa Bell or an Oscar Charleston. But some are, are more uh, obscure. How were these players chosen as your subjects? Uh, well, the, the fellow who put the, uh, who put the show together, the guy who commissioned it all, uh, Jay Caldwell, he, he kind of had a vision for, uh, this thing, you know, not only representing the, the stars of the Negro leagues and, you know, the outsider leagues, but, uh, but also, you know, kind of the role players or, or people who had interesting stories in, in one way or another. And I think the scope of it, he just kind of wanted to, to show, you know, a slice of everything, if that makes sense. We're speaking with the artist Greg Kreinler about um, his paintings, which are now being exhibited starting this week in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Negro National League. They're being exhibited at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It is in Kansas City, uh, Missouri, correct? Correct. Yes, it is. OK, I'm, I'm not being facetious. The museum is in Kansas City, Missouri. I think it's been open for about... 10 years or so, um, and they do great, great work at the museum celebrating the rich heritage of African-American baseball predating the integration of the game in 1947. I'm looking now at your Twitter feed at a portrait of the great Buck O'Neill, um, who was one of the better players in the Negro Leagues uh, in its waning days, and then, of course, became... Um, 
kind of an uh, an eloquent uh, historian of the leagues and spokesperson for the leagues later in life, and uh, was among the key figures in Ken Burns's documentary on baseball. It's a, it's a it's a great portrait. Um, obviously, uh, you know, none of your subjects were sitting for you. Most of them are no longer with us. Uh, how did you go about uh, finding the photographs that you would model your oil portraits after? Well, luckily, I, I do have a lot of friends who are, you know, into collecting people who are in the memorabilia industry, and they were able to help with a lot of those players. But, you know, it just it took a lot of digging, you know, whether it was uh, old newspapers or, or books or, uh, you know, whatever. I, I just I kind of went to basically every length I could to find images of some of these guys. And it was definitely not easy these uh you know the negro leagues were not uh as well documented visually as uh as the white leagues so it it was just kind of tough kind of finding the look of this history and trying to get it right is is there a way i mean i i, I don't know much about portraiture but obviously it's more than just um it, 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 it's it's about finding a depth to the subjects that goes beyond the physical uh, characteristics of whoever it is you're painting. And when you're when you're painting legendary figures such as a Josh Gibson or an Oscar Charleston or a Satchel Page, whose personalities are even well known um, these days, uh, long after their deaths, how do you imbue those portraits with something beyond just what they look like? Well, it's. Uh, you know, I think what I what I would try to do or what I did try to do is, you know, I would read up on, on each painting on, or on each you know subject I was painting. And I, I try to kind of internalize, I guess, the character that that they were, or at least from, you know, what accounts tell us. And I I kind of I, I hope that some of that kind of gets imbued into the painting, you know, it's kind of an intangible thing, I find. Um, I think my main concern was actually just trying to to depict them, you know, kind of accurately or as accurately as possible. So, so you're giving the viewer kind of a look at what these guys actually looked like, and you're showing them that they were real people that, you know, breathe the same air that, that we actually breathe. So it's you know, it, it's it's kind of like I'm trying to act like a, a visual reporter, if that makes sense. I'm just kind of showing what, what life was like and what it was like. Greg Kreinler's portraits of 230 figures from Negro Leagues Baseball are on display at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City starting this week. They're really remarkable, Greg, and they're just bursting with vitality. Beautiful. Uh, it's it's uh, it's a pleasure having you on the show, and thank you for this great work. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you having me on. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. We're joined now by perhaps our least favorite guest, contractually obligated, however, to feature him on the show Several times a year, the couch slouch, the great sports television columnist and curmudgeon, the one and only Norman Chad. Norman, thank you for being with us. And I, I say that facetiously, um, but not disingenuously. Is that possible? You've already used at least two words that I don't like. <laughs> but yes, 
I have no problem being on the uh, the weekend talk show equivalent of a proctology visit. <laughs> and, you know, we tried to reach you earlier in the week, and I have to say it came as no great surprise to me um, that you were uh, out of touch because you were at a doctor's appointment. And there's nothing funny about being sick, and I don't want to violate any HIPAA laws by getting into details here or anything like that. But um, you've written over the years about your uh, hypochondria. It's 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 kind of part of um, your public persona, is it a real thing or is it something you just have fun with as the character Norman Chad? Because the real Norman Chad is actually much more like an Albert Schweitzer than the public figure that everyone knows. Okay, you're mistaken about the hypochondria. Kornheiser is the hypochondriac, okay? just just oh, that's, right. I, that's right, I forgot. Now, I, 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 forgot. I have actually sometimes publicly written about my own travails, which are legitimate. I believe I have the, the Mount Rushmore or the trifecta of ailments uh, in the middle section, uh, kidney stones twice, oh. IBS, legendary. Irritable bowel. And I'm right now forgetting the third. The third. Yeah, the other day I was at the urologist. <laughs> and uh, urologists generally of the, the group of doctors you go to, Urologists have the least sense of humor of the whole group. Well, wouldn't you? Even more so than, like, say, dentists. Dentists are funny. I mean, would you have a sense of humor if you were a urologist? I mean, that would probably kill whatever kind of um, fun, you know, or humor in your in your life, wouldn't it? I guess so. So I, I never enjoyed going to the urologist. Uh, he is a good urologist, but we need to, we did not go into any of those details. We're speaking with Norman Chad. The couch slouch. Um, you know, the last couple of days, we, we've seen the Astros kind of apologize. We don't know how much they really are contrite or if this is just kind of a public flogging, taking their licks, uh, accepting the tar and the feathers so that they can move on. Do you, do you find this, this apology tour convincing, Norman? No, most apology tours are not convincing. Uh, we have a very unusual one right now with Antonio Brown yes. in the National Football League. That's that's a separate thing, but I'm shocked by that apology tour, but someone did get to him uh, in terms of whatever 12 steps he's taking. The Astros apology tour, uh, which is like drips and drabs, uh, does not appear convincing. Uh, and the Astros are really in a bad spot. Uh, and as usual, I don't want to say the cover-up's worse than the crime. Why wouldn't you say that? Well, they would be able to rehabilitate themselves a lot quicker if they just came out front. And this has you know, always been the case, whether it's O.J. Simpson, whether it's Pete Rose, and whether it's the Astros now. If you just come out front and and just say that you were wrong, you get rehabilitated in America pretty quickly. If O.J. had done that, he would be back on the NFL today. He would have been an Oscars presenter. Uh, within five years. Stop it, Norman. Stop. I, I was willing to give you Pete Rose, but but not OJ. I, I, we're speaking with Norman Chad, but seriously on the Pete Rose thing, and I've always felt this way. If in 1989, August 1989, Pete Rose had sat down and done an interview with Mike Wallace or you know Steve Croft, and at that point had said, look, I have an addiction. I am a compulsive gambler. I need help. 
I've done something wrong here, and I understand that baseball has to punish me for it now, and I have to serve that punishment, but I need help. If if he had taken that approach, and I'm not sure that anybody anybody would have taken that approach in 1989, probably everyone would now, you're right. He would have gotten himself back in the good graces. He probably would be off the ineligible list in, in the Hall of Fame. Um, that's what a, a communications expert would tell him to do now, isn't it? Uh, correct. But he he could have he didn't have to if, if he did it in 1989 if he didn't do it in 89 Jeremy if he had done that any time in the next 10 years he'd be off the ineligible list by now uh, so yeah he just he's you know he was either stubborn or stupid or had bad counsel around him but you're absolutely correct and actually you're probably absolutely correct for the, for the second time since I've known you uh, I know you had secretariat uh, in the Belmont in 73 and now and now here I did. Against all odds. And I am, obviously I am exaggerating about OJ uh, a bit, but that's the way America works. So uh, Pete Rose, I, I feel very little sympathy for, and I realize that, that sooner or later Pete Rose will be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, that's, I know, again, that's a separate topic to the Astros. But to, to tell me that his – people now are telling me that his penalty has been disproportionate when you take a look at the Astros. Well, it wasn't disproportionate. What they're doing with the Astro players right now, that may be incorrect, but that doesn't change the fact that what they did to Pete Rose was correct at the time. So uh, I get the tide of that particular argument. The Astros, though, they just need to come on out. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I, there's another issue here, though, Jeremy, that, that, that I understand in baseball. Maybe you could explain this to me. Sign stealing is not cheating in baseball. Correct? That is correct. If you're doing it, you know, just with your eyes and your hands and communicating second base, that's fair game. Okay. So that's acceptable. And yet, and so MLB a couple of years ago decided that whether through electronic devices and through video technology, that was against our rules. They established a rule. So the Astros have repeatedly broken that rule. So I guess that you would call that cheating then? I guess that's cheating. Yeah, I, I would call that cheating. Why wouldn't you call that cheating? I mean, there's a very, um, I think, uh, apt analogy, right? Like, you, you know the casino environment. If you're counting cards in your head, they might not like that, but that's not against the rules, right? But if you've got some camera there that's counting cards or you've got some electronic device that's helping you do that, I don't know how that would work. I know th- nothing about, you know, cards. That would uh, get you in some trouble, right? Yeah, actually, now you're right for about the third time since I've known you. Uh, <laughs> even though, by the way, technically the casino can toss you for any reason. Right. They will toss you for counting cards sometimes. They can toss you for any reason they want, but you're right. There is a difference between doing it in your head and using an uh, electronic device. Uh, so, yes, that is an apt analogy. Uh, that's pretty impressive. This is a big win for me today, Norman. I, I mean, this is this is – and this is coming on the heels. I mean, I don't know if I'm – you know, speaking out of school here, you you actually sent me a note the other day complimenting something I had done, and I wasn't going to go there because it seems self serving, but I get I get so few opportunities in the context of our relationship and our dialogue to do so. You liked the Drew Bledsoe E sixty. You told me so. Yeah, I'm sure you have a paper trail on that, but yes, I, I enjoy <laughs> the, the hour, uh, even though it's it's amazing that one can can ply the professional trade. Well, sitting uh, sitting down, and I believe, she, unless it was just not really wine. Oh, it was wine. You know, like n- not sipping real scotch. Yeah. Well, sipping a sipping a, I believe, 
polishing off a bottle of wine, the two of you, during the time you spent together, which I'm sure was obviously more than, you know, a half hour, an hour. So it wasn't like you were it was just- a couple of hours, a couple of hours. We finished off a whole bottle of a strong Cabernet Sauvignon. And I, I'm not a connoisseur, but, you know, Drew is. And you might be surprised to hear this, Norman, but I think it had more effect on me than on him. Uh, no, that doesn't surprise me, as you know. Uh, and it was, I'm sure that the Cabernet was a bit bold for you. And, uh, yeah, you're pretty much of a lightweight. But, yeah, yes. it's amazing that you can produce, you know, essentially Emmy-quality, sports Emmy-quality, let me tell you that, sports <laughs> Emmy-quality television <laughs> while polishing off a bottle of wine. But, yeah, I really enjoyed, you know, as you know, yeah, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for but people who didn't anyway. see it, you, you, you sort of hopped between the, the whole aftermath of him having to deal with being replaced by Tom Brady with his second life. In, in the wine business where he's uh, you know been quite successful and I was very impressed by Drew uh, you know as a person just the way he dealt with uh, what he had to deal with over the last 15 of uh, the last 10 years of his career uh, because being benched and uh, then just pivoting to a, another area which he's very passionate about so yeah it was a very good piece again you know may, maybe your best work uh, well, it was, it was all the producer. It was all Max Brodsky, the producer, and Dave Lynch, the editor, and great camera work. They can they can clean up my mess. Norman, I love you. Thank you for being here. I will talk to you next year. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.